This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 199 of Once Upon a Crime. In one week, Once Upon a Crime will hit the huge milestone of reaching our 200th episode. We want to share the celebration with our listeners by putting you on the podcast. I'll be releasing a special Ask Me Anything episode, and we want your recorded questions to play on the show. If you have a question about a case we've covered, my thoughts on something I maybe haven't yet covered, a question about true crime podcasting in general, or anything else, you can record your question and you might hear it played for our audience. You can head over to our website, truecrimepodcast.com, and once there, just look for the red microphone in the lower right-hand corner of the homepage. Click on it to send a voicemail with your recorded question. Please submit your question by March 31st for a chance to have it played on our upcoming special episode. Thanks. On the second installment of the series Chopped, I continue the theme of chefs, cooks, and restaurateurs who turned away from the stove and toward a life of crime. This time, I'll tell you about a career criminal who was given a second chance in life by none other than celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay. Ramsay, who himself experienced a rough upbringing, decided to use his fame to train and mentor a group of hardened criminals to cook and run a successful food service business. One of the men who Ramsay thought had promise was 33-year-old Anthony Kelly, who had spent 16 years of his life in and out of prison. But Ramsey would soon discover that taking a group of inmates and molding them into a cohesive, successful team was more challenging and fraught with danger than nearly anything else he'd undertaken in the three decades he'd been in the restaurant game. Would Ramsey be able to rehabilitate Kelly and the other prisoners on his team? Or would they return to a life of crime once the cameras stopped rolling? This is Chapter 2 of Chopped, the story of Anthony Kelly and Gordon Ramsay's Bad Boy Bakery. Gordon Ramsay had always believed that if he worked hard enough and committed himself to a task, he could succeed at anything. His hard work and dedication to a life in the kitchen earned him an empire that, as of 2019, was estimated to be worth over $60 million. From kitchen helper to celebrity chef and the owner of over 60 restaurants around the world, Ramsey's restaurants have been awarded 16 Michelin stars, the ultimate mark of culinary success, and currently hold a total of seven. Not only is Ramsey an award-winning chef, but he has also become a celebrity in Britain and beyond due to a career in television. Ramsey would star in several restaurant rehab and cooking competition shows, a very popular type of reality television, beginning in the late 1990s and continuing today. In addition to all these accomplishments, in 2012, Ramsey decided to take on possibly his most challenging project to date, training and mentoring a group of hardened prison inmates to become a team of cooks. His goal was not only to have them learn to cook and bake, but also to run a successful and profitable bakery business. This do-gooder attitude may seem a bit out of the ordinary if you know anything about Ramsey's reputation as a no-nonsense, foul-mouthed chef with a reputation for harshly berating his kitchen staff at times. 
However, it starts to make sense once you learn about the chef's own hardscrabble upbringing. Gordon James Ramsay was born in Scotland in 1966. His mother, Helen Cosgrove, was a nurse and the mother of four children. Gordon was her second born. He has an older sister, Diane, a younger brother named Ronnie, and Yvonne is the youngest of the Ramsey children. Gordon describes his mother as a wonderful, hardworking woman who taught him many valuable lessons growing up to honor his commitments, always do his best, never give up, and do good for others. Helen Cosgrove stood in sharp contrast to Gordon's father, Gordon Sr. The elder Ramsey was a short-tempered alcoholic who never held a job very long. The family found itself relocating often. Ramsey says, Dad would often have a fallout with someone at work and get fired. And because our home often came with his job, we would become homeless and have to move again. Gordon's family would relocate from their home in Glasgow, Scotland to England when he was nine. There they would settle in Stratford-upon-Avon. His father was often violent when drunk. Ramsey would later write in his biography titled Humble Pie that he and his siblings witnessed his father emotionally and physically abusing their mother. Gordon Sr. was also a serial womanizer, according to Ramsey. There were times when the police were called to break up one of his father's tirades, and his mother was taken to the hospital for her injuries. The Ramsey children were also briefly placed in a children's home. About this time in his life, Ramsey wrote, I will never understand why mom stayed with him. She deserves so much better and so much more. It still pains me to remember how badly he treated her. Ramsey would say he had no talent in school apart from football. He exhibited a natural athletic skill on the field, and this, he says, was the only time his father showed any interest in him. His father's dream was that his son should play for their home team, the Glasgow Rangers. At the age of 12, Ramsey was a good enough player to make the cut to join the under-14 league. When he was 15, his father moved the family back to Scotland so Gordon could try out for the Rangers. He was given a trial with the team, but by the time he was 17, Ramsey had already been sidelined with knee injuries. His football career was over before he was 20. At the age of 16, things at home had grown so bad between his parents that Gordon and his older sister Diane moved out and into their own flat. He worked as a dishwasher in an Indian restaurant while his sister was hired to wait on tables. His father continued to drink and rage out of control at his wife. One night, while Helen slept, her husband threw scalding milk on her and then dragged her downstairs to continue the assault. The police were called, and once again, Helen was admitted to the hospital to be treated for her injuries. This time, however, the women's aid organization stepped in to help. They provided a safe place for Helen and her two children who still lived at home, Ronnie and Yvonne, to get away from her abusive husband. They remained there for six months. Later, when Gordon Sr. moved out of their home, Helen returned. She discovered that during her absence, her husband had destroyed the place. He'd also left a note behind, addressed to her. It read, One night when you're least expecting it, I'll come back and finish you all off. Gordon would later write that having witnessed his father destroy his own life and attempt to destroy his mother's, he became bound and determined to take a different path. Gordon had always been driven to succeed and highly competitive. Now he channeled that drive to push himself to great success. He prided himself on being able to learn and excel at anything he set his mind to, 
and would work harder than everyone else to be the best. Ramsay had been employed in restaurants for a few years by now and had watched the chefs closely to learn how to cook. He worked every shift he could and made himself invaluable to the chefs in order to have a chance to be trained by them. At age 19, he took his mother's advice and applied to culinary school. Upon hearing about this, his father ridiculed him, saying that, quote, cooking was for poofs. Gordon saw little of his father after that for several years while he studied and then began working in restaurants in London and Paris. After attending North Oxfordshire Technical College, Gordon Ramsay began his culinary career working in restaurants first in London, then Paris. Ramsay's ultra-competitive nature always drove him to be the best at whatever he was doing. Now he worked 17-hour shifts and took almost no time off, but spent all his time working to learn the craft. Ramsay found he rather enjoyed when the chef would yell and berate the staff, expecting nothing less than perfection in the kitchen. This was the thrill of the challenge Ramsay hadn't experienced since his footballer days. It excited him and made him work even harder to succeed. At the age of 19, he worked under chef Marco Pierre White at his restaurant Harvey's in London. Ramsay may have molded some of his fiery behavior in the kitchen from his early mentor. If anything, Chef White's temper tantrums in the kitchen were even worse than what Ramsay would later be accused of. Within two years of opening Harvey's in 1987, White had earned two Michelin stars. By then, White was feeling important enough to eject paying customers from his restaurant if he didn't like the tone of their comments or dared to ask for anything special. He once assaulted his head chef who was moving too slowly for White's liking, ignoring the fact that the poor man had recently broken his leg. Another young chef had the back of his jacket and trousers cut wide open with a butcher knife by White when he dared to complain about the temperature in the kitchen. It was rumored that White even caused Ramsay to cry on one occasion after he'd been subjected to one of the chef's verbal assaults early in his career. After being put through a rigorous apprenticeship at Harvey's for two years, Ramsay decided his next step was to learn the art of French cuisine. Over the next five years, he worked at some of the best restaurants in Paris, and was trained by two Michelin-starred chefs, Guy Savoy and Joel Robuchon. He also worked as a private chef on a yacht as it sailed around Italy. There, he picked up invaluable lessons on Italian cuisine. In 1993, Ramsay returned to London to work for Pierre Kaufman as head chef at La Tante Claire. Just a few months later, he was approached by his old boss, Marco Pierre White, who offered Ramsay the opportunity to become head chef at his new restaurant, Aubergine. Ramsay accepted, and within 14 months of opening, he had earned his first Michelin star. Aubergine became a great success and one of the most sought-after reservations in the city. Ramsay began to make a name for himself as the press clamored for interviews with the young chef who was praised for superbly executed modern European dishes at a reasonable price. But perhaps Ramsay's greatest reward at Aubergine happened on the second night it opened. A young Montessori teacher, Cayetana Hutchison, was dining with her parents when the chef spotted her. Ramsey struck up a conversation, and eventually she agreed to go out with him. In 1996, Tana and Gordon wed. They would have five children together. In 1998, Ramsey opened his own restaurant, Restaurant Gordon Ramsey, at Royal Hospital Road. Ramsey had become close to his father-in-law, Chris Hutchison, who he often consulted on matters of business and finance. Hutchison helped him to secure the funding he needed for his first restaurant, 
and Ramsey would later appoint him as chief executive of Gordon Ramsey Holdings Limited. In his position, Hutchison would oversee the business dealings of Ramsey's restaurant and media empire. Ramsey probably was grateful to have a male family member who treated him like a son, showed him respect, and offered sound help and advice. Since the time he was a kid, Gordon had to navigate life on his own with his own father of little help. It must have been a great feeling for Ramsey to have a solid father figure in his life for the first time. As Ramsey became a father himself, he would reflect on his own upbringing, saying, I could never see myself behaving the way my father did when I was a child. I want to be a role model for my children and have them look up to me. Gordon Ramsay Sr. died in 1997 of health issues related to his drinking. He didn't live long enough to see how successful his son became in his career as a chef, a job he had ridiculed. Ramsay had begun speaking to his father shortly before his death and had even reserved a special table for him at his restaurant. But sadly, his father became ill and died before this could happen. Ramsay himself rarely drank and never touched drugs. His younger brother, Ronnie, began abusing drugs as a teen and would later acquire a heroin habit. Gordon, his mother, and his sisters all tried to help Ronnie over the years. Gordon would describe their attempts to help his brother as a never-ending cycle, with Ronnie relapsing, his family stepping in once again when he was sick or in trouble, only to see him return to drugs and a life on the street. But Ramsey's own life continued on an upward trajectory. In 2001, he received his third Michelin star. He opened several more restaurants and eventually branched out to other countries, including Italy, Canada, the United States, Japan, Australia, and China. Ramsey won numerous prestigious awards and was appointed Officer of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II in 2006 for his service to the hospitality industry. Ramsey's television career began in the early 2000s when he appeared first as a celebrity judge on British cooking competition shows. He also appeared in two documentaries about the restaurant industry, Boiling Point and Beyond Boiling Point. In 2001, he was featured in his first televised series, Faking It, a reality show that followed Ramsey as he mentored young chefs. It would win a BAFTA, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts Award. In all things, Ramsey strived to be the best. He described his drive, bordering on obsession, to earn the most Michelin stars, have the highest television ratings, and sell the most books. Although he reluctantly admitted that he could never outsell celebrity chef Jamie Oliver when it came to cookbooks. But it appeared that no one had more cooking shows on television than Gordon Ramsay. In 2004, Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares debuted in Britain. In 2007, the U.S. version would begin its first season. Kitchen Nightmares was soon followed by the even more popular series Hell's Kitchen, The F Word with Gordon Ramsay, and Master Chef, all drawing in large audiences in Britain, the United States, and beyond. In 2012, Gordon Ramsay's four-part series, Gordon Behind Bars, aired. The series followed Chef Ramsay as he entered London's Brixton Prison to launch a program to teach a group of inmates how to run a kitchen and produce food items to sell outside prison walls. Brixton Prison has been in existence for over 200 years. Originally built in 1820, it's historically been plagued with problems like overcrowding, vermin infestation, and harsh treatment of its prisoners. Today, it has become a Category C training establishment. Inmates are offered a range of educational and training programs like information technology, social and life skills, and art. 
However, it still contends with typical prison issues like overpopulation, mental health needs of prisoners, drug abuse, and violence. After overcoming the hurdle of convincing prison administrators at Brixton to allow him to offer the experimental program, Ramsey interviewed 22 inmates, giving them a shot to work with a celebrity chef in the prison kitchen. The inmates Ramsey selected to interview were incarcerated for a variety of offenses, including burglary, theft, robbery, and bodily harm. Of the 22 interviewed, 12 were chosen to take part in the six-month program. Some of the original 12 inmates selected were Andrew Inslee, who was serving a 15-month sentence for burglary, and Tespa Jones, who began his life of crime at age 12 after enduring a childhood of hardship. Jones was serving a three-year sentence for robbery and attempted burglary. Another man selected for the program, Paul Wyatt, was convicted of burglary and sentenced to eight months in prison. Wyatt was a heroin addict who required a daily dose of methadone while incarcerated. Jerome Samuels was just 22 years old, and Gordon saw potential in the young man due to his intelligence as well as his youth. But like many younger men who enter prison, Samuels frequently acted out angrily and aggressively with other inmates and staff. This was perhaps partially out of fear and partially out of the need to prove himself tough so as not to become a target of more seasoned inmates. Within a few days of being selected by Ramsey to work in the kitchen, Samuels was kicked out of the program by prison officials for verbally assaulting a female officer. Ramsey went to bat for Samuels, expressing his belief that the young man should be offered a chance to prove himself in the program. Gordon believed this would help Samuels gain skills as well as self-esteem and perhaps result in mitigating his behavior issues. Ramsey believed Samuels could be reached and result in a different outcome for his future, pointing out that he was just 22. But the prison administration disagreed, instead transferring Samuels to a maximum security prison. Ramsey was frustrated by this decision and upset over losing who he believed was a promising young man. But one inmate Gordon Ramsay chose as part of his kitchen team was 33-year-old Anthony Kelly. Kelly would become a standout figure during the four-episode series. He was charismatic and described by Ramsay as having the gift of gab. However, Kelly's Cockney accent sometimes made him difficult to understand, even by the show's producers. Kelly's screen time was often punctuated by subtitles, some of which simply read, unintelligible. Anthony Kelly was born in 1978 and raised in Canning Town at the east end of London. His father was a sailor from Liverpool. Kelly's mother would give birth to five children. I didn't say raised five children, because according to Kelly, both of his parents were severe alcoholics who neglected their children and rarely gave time to even their basic needs. His mother and father were frequently drunk and fought constantly, Kelly says. It wasn't unusual for one of them to pull out a knife or a broken bottle against the other. They not only brandished these weapons, but also used them to injure one another. Once, Kelly recalled, his mother placed a hot iron on his father's back while he slept. Kelly's childhood was chaotic, to say the least. The Kelly children were left in squalor and often hungry. Anthony, or Tony as he's called, began running the streets, pinching items to sell for a few coins in order to eat. He soon began hanging out with a tough crowd. At the age of seven, Kelly says he began smoking puff, and by 10, he was using cocaine. He would steal painkillers from his mum to get high, and also to share with his new friends. Starting at around age 10, Kelly was picked up for petty crimes. When social workers realized the bad environment he and his siblings were subjected to, they were placed in foster care. 
Kelly ran away from these group home placements dozens of times, often landing back in a juvenile lockup facility. Other times, he found himself sleeping on the streets and stealing to survive. When he was just 12 years old, Kelly's mother died from an alcohol-related illness. She was just 39. At 15, he served his longest sentence yet in a young offender's institution, incarcerated for theft. During this time, Kelly was designated by juvenile authorities as, quote, a prolific and priority offender. Thus began a pattern of poverty, petty crimes, and then more serious felonies, followed by incarceration. This became a revolving door for Kelly. He had been in and out of various correctional institutions for 16 years by the time he met Gordon Ramsay. When Ramsay plucked him out from among 800 other inmates at Brixton Prison, Kelly was serving a 30-month sentence for commercial burglary and dangerous driving. He was also the father of two. One of his children was just an infant. Kelly, like most of the other inmates chosen, had no experience in the kitchen and could barely boil water, but was an eager participant. When Gordon Ramsay arrived at Brixton, he told the inmates who would make up his kitchen team that he had also grown up in a dysfunctional household. He could have followed in his father's footsteps and become an alcoholic, or he could have coped like his younger brother did by becoming a heroin addict, Ramsay said, but he decided at a young age to go a different way. He learned to cook, worked hard at his craft, and parlayed his kitchen skills into a profitable business that afforded him a good life. He told the men standing in front of him that no matter where they were in life or what their past history, he believed they could also choose a different path. He was willing to help them succeed if they were willing to commit to the program and put in the work. Ramsey told his team that they not only would become competent cooks, but would be guided to launch a successful and profitable business. They would sell their wares outside of the prison walls, Ramsey explained. The profit would be used to keep the program going and perhaps lead to a culinary career for those who wished one. Problems cropped up right away in the kitchen. The inmates were not used to putting in a full day's work. Some said they had never held a legitimate job in their lives. They were also not used to working and cooperating as part of a team. Immediately, some of the men began clashing with each other. Ramsey had his hands full, not only teaching kitchen skills, but also refereeing fights and arguments. He also spent a fair amount of time and energy butting heads with prison authorities and the governor, whose permission he needed to do almost anything inside Brixton's walls. Just changing the daily routine for prisoners could make inmates anxious and set off behavioral issues. Many of the inmates had spent their formative years incarcerated and had become institutionalized, They were used to living under strict guidelines with a rigid schedule, and for some, varying these parameters even a small amount could cause them to react negatively or even violently. Several of the officers and administrators in the prison thought Ramsey was getting in over his head and were not supportive of the kitchen program. They believed he was setting himself up for disappointment. In short, they expected the program and the prisoners to fail. But Ramsey was a person who never gave up on himself or his own lofty goals. Now he also dug in his heels and would not give up on his team. What the chef witnessed was a group of adult men who were sitting in their cells, wasting their lives watching television, and being idle most of the day. He wanted to give them, perhaps for the first time in their lives, a challenge they could either rise to or not. But either way, he wanted to provide the experience of doing more to have more. Ramsey modeled for the men by words and actions that he believed they could succeed. 
Some of the men would later express that having Gordon Ramsay believe in them, even while he was berating them to do better, helped them to believe in themselves. For some, this was the first time they cared about not only their own future, but the future of a team they were part of. Naming their enterprise Bad Boys Bakery, the men were taught to make baked goods, sandwiches, and wraps. The food was well-received by the public and sold well, but eventually, they decided to focus on a couple of specialty baked goods instead of a large menu. With this new model, Ramsey was able to secure a contract with Cafe Nero locations around South London. The coffee shop agreed to stock Bad Boys Bakery's cakes and lemon tart slices in 14 of their locations. The bakery continued to be run inside the prison after the seven-month Gordon Ramsay-led venture ended. It is now overseen by Working Links, a welfare-to-work program. Visiting the bakery, you would never guess it is inside a prison and that the men creating all these wonderful breads and cakes are actually prisoners, Alex Head of the Social Pantry said. I really enjoy heading into the bakery. It is a hive of activity, always lively and fun. It is great meeting the guys, hearing about the skills they have learned, and how baking has changed their jail time. For lots of them, baking is new, and they enjoy being given the opportunity to learn their skills. The bakery's customers are encouraged to consider employing the inmates upon their release. Some of Gordon Ramsay's original 12 bakers have gone on to careers in the culinary arts. Iqbal Wahab, the owner of one of London's top restaurants, Roast, was introduced to inmate Andrew Inslee through the show Gordon Behind Bars. After his release, Inslee landed a position at Wahab's restaurant. Tesfa Jones had joked when he was selected for Ramsey's team, maybe I'm the next Gordon Ramsay. Maybe I'm the black Gordon Ramsay. Jones impressed the chef enough to be given a tryout at Ramsay's Savory Restaurant. His trial was a success, and he was hired on as a cook. Paul Wyatt was also given a tryout at Savory, but ended up losing his job when he relapsed into his heroin habit. Anthony Kelly's life after release had its ups and downs. Sprung from prison in 2012, Kelly was determined to go straight and for the first time became a responsible husband and father. He credited Ramsey's influence, saying he was clean for the first time since the age of 10. I owe Gordon a lot, Kelly said. He was a totally genuine person and I'm grateful for the opportunity he gave me. But then Kelly laughed, saying, I was never going to be no cook. Instead, he spent time giving back to the community by mentoring other incarcerated youth. He would try and convince them to take another path in life by describing his own history and his 16 years behind bars. The man with the gift of gab also began an acting career. He first volunteered with the Theater Royal in Plymouth as part of a rehab program. The staff soon asked him to audition for a play they were staging. Kelly discovered that he loved being in front of an audience which is pretty obvious once you watch his antics in the television series. Kelly stayed out of trouble for about a year before being arrested in January of 2013 for burglary and auto theft. He was jailed for 120 days for the burglary and given a 60-day suspended sentence for the theft of the car. He spent more time in a rehab program but struggled to remain sober. In June of 2014, Kelly, now 38 years old, was arrested after a botched burglary that ended in a police chase. He and another man were caught attempting to break into a building contractor's yard. When the police arrived, Kelly jumped into his car and fled, breaking several laws in his attempt to outrun the cops. His driving became so dangerous that police gave up the chase and arrested him later, something you rarely see here in the U.S., but is so much more sensible. He pled guilty to attempted burglary, dangerous driving, 
and driving while disqualified, which I believe in the U.S. would be called driving on a suspended license. For all that, Kelly was only given a 40-day jail sentence. Upon being informed that his one-time protege had returned to a life of crime, Gordon Ramsay said, It's sad to learn about Anthony, who I've kept in touch with since the program ended, and who had been doing so well. Unfortunately, this is the challenge this sort of project faces, and shows the level of support required to help those leaving prison get back into society and become active contributors. However, it doesn't mean we should give up, and I'm delighted with the positive effect of the bakery. More than 60 people have been part of it, and only 3% have reoffended within a year of leaving custody, compared to the national average of 47%. But Kelly was given one more shot at changing his life. This time, counselors with the Anchor House program stepped in and offered to pay for a rehab program and counseling for Kelly. He successfully completed the program and once again began acting at the Theater Royal. Kelly was also hired to work for the St. Giles Trust in 2015. He was assigned to work with other ex-offenders in their rehab program. Kelly became a coach and counselor to young men, many who had experienced similar challenges as Kelly, dysfunctional homes, family violence, and drugs and alcohol. As of this writing, Anthony Kelly is still doing well and seems happy and healthy. He's enjoying his children and is keeping himself busy during Britain's COVID lockdown. According to his Facebook page, Kelly contracted COVID last year, but has recovered, although he still is experiencing some breathing issues. This story was a little different than most I cover. No murders and only what we might call minor crimes. But I found it interesting because I have also worked inside the correctional system. Many of the challenges Gordon Ramsay faced while working inside the prison were familiar to me. Watching the series Gordon Behind Bars brought to mind many of the themes I witnessed firsthand while working behind bars myself. I thought I'd share some of these insights and observations with you before we end this episode. First of all, you may be surprised to learn that contrary to what you might think listening to this podcast, I am not without sympathy for some criminals. Of course, on Once Upon a Crime, I share with you cases of some of the worst of the worst criminals, and for many of these perpetrators, I have no sympathy. However, I realize that most people who are incarcerated are not serial killers, unrepentant child killers, etc. The majority of those who find themselves serving jail or prison sentences have likely committed drug offenses, financially motivated crimes like burglary and theft, simple assaults, etc., What I've learned in studying and researching the people that make up the majority of crimes committed is that a significant percentage report family histories of one or more of the following. Poverty, drug and or alcohol abuse, absent or inconsistent parenting, physical, emotional, sexual, or other forms of abuse, or family violence. I've held positions in juvenile correctional facilities as both a teacher and a counselor. Nearly all the children, teens, and young adults I've worked with had experienced one or more of these factors. In addition, many had undiagnosed or misdiagnosed emotional or mental issues, learning disabilities, inconsistent attendance in school, and were in poor health. What I observed were young people who had started out at a detriment due to their home life and or environment. Many exhibited emotional immaturity, poor impulse control, and limited coping skills. 
These are some of the same behaviors I witnessed exhibited by the inmates in Gordon Behind Bars. Gordon Ramsay often exclaimed how childish the men were, squabbling about petty issues, complaining about insignificant matters, and reacting in anger to perceived slights. A sign of emotional immaturity is being unable to communicate your needs effectively, instead resorting to acting out in anger and or displaying a fight-or-flight response. This was evidenced on the program, for example, when one inmate or another became frustrated and began yelling and threatening physical harm, fight. The other response often exhibited was men quitting and storming out of the kitchen, flight. This response was so common that Ramsey created a rule that anyone who walked out of the kitchen this way would not be allowed to return. Many of these men had lived their lives in survival mode, experiencing life as dog-eat-dog, and had come to believe that only the toughest survive. Most had no experience being part of a team, working cooperatively, or looking beyond their own interests. To make the business a success, each had to sacrifice their individual immediate needs and instead focus on the long-term goals of the group, perhaps an unfamiliar concept. The practice of delayed gratification takes a higher level of emotional maturity as well. Some of the other, lesser complex, yet sometimes more frustrating challenges that Ramsey faced were also very familiar to me from working in correctional settings. The kitchen knives were all stored in a locked cabinet with outlines traced around each one, so it was immediately apparent which were missing at any given time. The men expressed feeling insulted by this. Ramsey also complained about the inconvenience of having to lock and unlock the cabinet over and over for the men to simply do their jobs. But he also reminded himself out loud that these men were prisoners, some of whom had committed violent crimes. We had the same kind of accounting system where I worked, but we never, never would have handed one of our chargers a sharpened knife. As a matter of fact, I audibly gasped when I saw that they allowed the inmates to walk around the kitchen with 10-inch butcher knives. No, the items we kept such a close eye on and counted at the beginning and the end of each class period were pencils. We also had to inspect each pencil when it was turned in. The students I taught in the juvenile correctional facility would attempt to break off a piece of a pencil and affix the metal band with the eraser to the broken end. They would then attempt to smuggle out the broken piece of the pencil back to the unit with them. Of course, this could be sharpened and fashioned into a weapon, so we had to be very careful to account for every piece of pencil. Fights among inmates, of course, are common. Ramsey balked at being given a whistle to blow in case of emergency. Maybe he didn't believe that actual physical danger was likely to happen. If so, he was quickly absolved of this naive notion when his kitchen staff immediately almost came to blows. Or maybe he thought he could take care of himself, even if there was a threat of violence. Then he most likely came to realize that he, a camera operator, and one female assistant would be no match for 10 or 12 angry prison inmates. I was lucky during my time working in correctional facilities that I never found myself in serious danger, although I did witness a few fights that were quickly quashed by guards. I spent much of my time in the classroom, oh, by the way, I was locked in with the inmates just like Gordon was in the kitchen, and kept a sharp eye out for any tense energy that might arise between inmates. I frequently employed distraction and de-escalation techniques to keep the environment as calm as possible. Finally, one of Gordon Ramsay's greatest frustrations, it seemed, was having to negotiate around prison staff and administrators. There are many wonderful people working in correctional settings who are dedicated to their jobs. However, in my experience, there are a couple of different personality types who work in these settings, some of who are more effective than others. One type, which was evidenced by the guard at Brixton who oversaw one wing of the prison, 
is the cynical naysayer. This type has become jaded after dealing with prisoners day in and day out for years and have decided that the best way to keep them in line is through rigid rules and swift punishment. This guard made no secret of the fact that he thought Gordon's idea was destined to fail and that these prisoners would never be up for the challenge. He almost seemed to scoff at the idea and had a smirk on his face whenever Ramsey encountered a problem. The second personality type I've witnessed can be a little too lenient with prisoners. They take the position that rewards are the best way to get inmates to cooperate. Ramsey pointed out that the prisoners in Brixton were free to stay in their units all day, lay in bed, stock snack foods to keep in their cells, and were even allowed to have their own television sets. How were these men supposed to learn the value of hard work when they weren't even required to have any sort of job while incarcerated, Ramsey mused. This type of system could be described as all carrot, no stick, and it has been deemed as ineffective for preparing prisoners for life outside of the institution. What does tend to be more effective in rehabilitation programs is addressing issues such as substance abuse and mental illness, and then providing education and job training opportunities along with the support needed to succeed in these goals. Most of the inmates that began Ramsey's program completed it successfully. This was possible, I believe, because Ramsey not only communicated a clear-cut expectations for the men, even though challenging, but also because he expressed his belief that each one of the men could succeed in the task and then provided mentorship and training toward this goal. He was tough on them, but they responded positively to even harsh criticism because, in my opinion, it was a sign of respect that he did expect more from them. He wasn't treating them like children, but like adults who he'd praise for a good day's work and call out when they begin to slip. He also reminded them that they weren't just letting him down, but their team as well. More importantly, he pointed out that they were letting themselves down when they weren't giving their very best. Giving someone the opportunity to prove to themselves that they can accomplish more than perhaps they've ever been given credit for before is a powerful motivator and one I believe that Gordon Ramsay demonstrated effectively in Gordon Behind Bars. As of this writing, Gordon Behind Bars can be viewed on Amazon Prime. If you're interested, give it a watch and let me know your thoughts. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Next week is our 200th episode, and it's a doozy. It's got it all. Serial murder, a female killer and an off-the-chain crazy case from the history books. You won't want to miss it. Also, I'll be featured on an upcoming episode of the podcast, Podcasts We Listen To. I believe the episode will be out the week of March 15th, possibly even on St. Patrick's Day. So raise a glass of Jameson or a mug of green beer and take a listen. That's Podcasts We Listen To. You can also join their Facebook page to talk about all your favorite podcasts and find others you'll love. And don't forget to get your question in for our 200th episode celebration bonus Q&A show. Go to truecrimepodcast.com and click on the red microphone in the corner to record your question to have it played on the special episode. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative and research assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. 